Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still in the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 66, and it is the first episode of 2022. So, Ooh. Happy New Year, all you okie-dokie most listeners. <laughs> That's right. Happy New Year. Yeah, so last week we had a kind of a series of different stories that Jesus was and his disciples were going through. We had some people asking... Um, Peter, whether their teacher Jesus paid the tax, and Jesus was showing that even though that as sons of Israel that they were in some ways exempt on on paper from that tax in order to not create more strife and bring more attention to themselves, they Jesus submitted himself to that authority and paid the tax. From yeah. there, we went to the disciples arguing amongst themselves who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus responds by saying, actually, you need to become a child, and we went into those details, how it's not taken the way that evangelicalism teaches it, that it's childlike, but in the sense of assuming your role within the hierarchy of God's kingdom, um, yeah. understanding your place with that. And then we ended where somebody was casting out demons in Jesus' name, but they weren't one of his direct followers. And Jesus is like, it's okay, you know, it's fine. Like, if if he's for us and our cause, like, let him do his thing. Yeah, those were good conversations. There's a bunch of stuff that popped into my head. I kept wanting to interrupt you and say, yeah, yeah, and we said this, and we said this, and we said this. But it's like, you know what? Go listen to that episode. Yeah. But yeah, and and the thing is, we continue with with the the sort of the same theme. We're going to continue with the thing about being like a little child and these little ones, that kind of stuff. So yeah, let's just go ahead because this is this is pretty good. We're going to read from Matthew uh, chapter eighteen verses seven through nine. This is similar to Mark chapter nine verses forty two through fifty. And actually, you know, I'm I'm going to read from Matthew because the Mark one, there's some confusion there. We'll talk about that in a minute, but I'll read from Matthew and then maybe one little piece at the end of the Mark bit. So here we go. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, Mark's is is basically the same. It's uh, We'll talk again in a second. Uh, but he does add this interesting bit at the end. He says at verse 49, For everyone 
will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. May I say Mark was feeling salty there. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, well, the whole thing in Mark is just really weird. It's kind of a mess because, okay, so for example, this uh, verse 42, the one where he talks about uh, the millstone hung around the neck and, and whatever, it just feels out of place. It feels like that should have gone up a little earlier, like verse 37, 38, that kind of thing. Uh, then it would be more in tune when, when with Matthew talking about stuff, whatever. Uh, and then you've got this thing, uh, verse 44. Well, there's a bunch of manuscripts where it isn't there. And interestingly, neither is verse 46. But the crazy thing is, verses 44 and 46 are exact duplicates of what is included in verse 48, where their worm does not not die and the fire is not quenched. So, I mean, all of that, super, super weird. But again, the basic meaning that we see from Mark is the same as Matthew's. So, I don't know. We just kind of have to overlook the weirdness. There's nothing bad in it, nothing weird. It's just the the manuscript right in this little bit got really messed up. So, I, I don't know. Again, I think I think you can kind of see how whatever appeared in Mark verses 38 to 41 it it feels even more like it just kind of got dropped in the middle of the story. Uh, not that you can't make it fit or whatever, but it just seems out of place. Now, again, to to bring us back where we've been talking, we've, we've been talking about how all of these things could easily apply to actual children. Because remember, this sort of started back when Jesus brought a child to him, used him as an example. Okay, so so we could be talking about actual children. That's okay. That's fine. But in the context, what, what we're talking about is those who have turned and become like children. And, and this could be those who, like, they've just gotten born again, like they're brand new baby Christians, as we would call them, that kind of thing. Or, similarly, it could, it could be more of a sign of a mature Christian life, where they've, they've chosen to, to lower themselves in the hierarchy. For other people's sake, so it's just it's a it's important you get that in your mindset. You know where we're talking, but he says this thing: "Woe to the world!" And I don't know. That's not really language that we use anymore, is it, Samuel? No, no. I mean, we say things like "Whoa," yeah, <laughs> or there's a, a a dance move that's called "Do the Woe." So. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that one. But this kind of woe, it's it's talking about, I don't know, grief or maybe regret or some sort of distress, maybe uh suffering, misfortune, affliction, all kind you get the idea. Those kind of words. The world, and and when I say the world, you might think of just humanity, or you might think of it as all creation, whatever. But whatever, the world experiences woe, all of those negative things, because of stumbling blocks, temptations to sin. 
And just as a reminder, what is sin, Samuel? It is anything contrary to what God has deemed good for humanity in the world. Yeah, yeah. And we've even gone a little further and said it's when we elevate our own will above God's, because that's really what's happening. That's the story of the garden and all the rest of Scripture. Anyway, it says right there that the temptations are inevitable or or necessary. And why? Well, for demonstrating his glory. It's for separating the wheat from the chaff, separating the sheep from the goats, all these things that we've talked about. But that's the woe for the world, generally speaking. But there's also woe for the one who is the stumbling block or the one who is creating the stumbling block for someone else or whatever. And that's causing someone to stray from the straight and narrow path, the good path, God's path. And and here's another point. Just because you think that you haven't technically sinned yourself, you could still be influencing or leading others to sin. And that's just as bad, if not worse. And so you can see the connection back. Nice connection. Receiving one such child is is the opposite of being a stumbling block, leading people astray, etc., right? So yeah. we're, we're continuing that thought. I'm sure people have heard this statement before, but there are just as many opportunities for there to be sin of omission as there is yeah. sins of commission, like ones that you commit, what things that you fail to do that promote people pursuing God and for yourself can yeah. be seen in the same light. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what Jesus, he gives us three examples of something. Now, what he's, what he's getting at is the idea that it's better to suffer in this life, since, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty short. So suffer in this light, life so that you can gain eternal life, rather than trying to avoid all suffering in this life and then ending up in Gehenna, or worse, you know, not getting eternal life at all, you know, that whole thing. So the suffering that's in view here, and this this is, it's also important. Think about what we're talking about. This isn't just any old suffering like, oh, I, you know, stepped wrong and broke my toe, or I got a disease or something. No, the suffering that is in view here is resisting temptation. So if you're not suffering, that just means you're giving in to the temptation. And, and, and so what we're talking about is removing from your life everything that may lead you to sin. So if you're not suffering, you're actually keeping company with trouble. Kind of see where I'm getting there, Samuel? Mm-hmm. All right. But what does he say? He, he's, uh, in these examples, he starts talking about this idea that, hey, it's better to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire's not quenched. Well, what's important about this, this comes from Isaiah 66, 24. It's, it's the end of Isaiah, and it's actually the image of those who have, uh, let's just say, attained eternal life, and they're looking out on those who have not 
and they see, and I'm just going to say, the dead, and the the image that we get, and, and it even states it in there, the worm doesn't die, the fire isn't quenched. It's the idea that the dead bodies, you know, it's it's like a form of hyperbole. There's so much food, the worms are going to live forever, right? Uh, or Or the fire that's trying to consume them, there's so much work that fire is never going to go out, right? So much fuel, I guess I should say. So important point, again, here's that word hell, and we're going to say it again. This isn't the modern conception of hell with, you know, the red guy with the pointy ears and all that stuff. It's it's Gehenna. And, and remember, we talked about this was the grave. It's at least, call it a region of the grave or something like that, as opposed to paradise. And and it's that time in between death and resurrection. And just as a textual point, just to point this out, uh, notice that it is the worm that is eternal and the fire that is eternal. It, it isn't explicitly saying that it's eternal conscious torment for the one there. It's the worm and the fire that are eternal. And again, it's it's symbolic. So, uh, also remember, ultimately, the grave where paradise and Gehenna and all of that exist, however that is, it's a heavenly thing we don't really know a lot about, ultimately, that's going to be thrown into the lake of fire as well. So, uh, just just trying to keep the text in perspective. Don't want people overreading or jumping to modern conclusions when the text doesn't really support it. But anyway, that's the whole hell thing. We've talked about it before. We'll keep trying to bring it up because it's probably probably new for a lot of people and, you know, just want to give them a chance to hear it over and over so they can kind of understand what we're talking about. Uh, but anyway, back to Jesus's examples. So Samuel, do you think that we all should just, you know, I mean, should we all just be crippled, lame, and blind? Literally? I think if you ask someone who is crippled, lame, and blind, they would say, I, I don't want this this uh, situation for you. Like, I, I, I would like to be out of this situation myself. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that Jesus is speaking literally here? He wants you lopping off limbs and tearing out eyeballs and stuff? Man, I hope not. Yeah, he's not. And, and I would say, of course not. Jesus is using hyperbole. Why? Because he wants to stress the gravity, the importance of not sinning, the importance of obeying God's instructions. The point is this. However bad, either if you've experienced it, it is, or however bad you may think it would be to be crippled or lame or blind or any combination of those together in this life, that is nothing compared to Gehenna and nothing compared to missing out on eternal life. Now, if you only had two choices, pretend the world was just super black and white, you only had two choices, either be crippled, lame, and blind, or go to Gehenna, well, which one should you choose, Samuel? I mean, I would choose the deformities for sure. Yeah, of course you would. But the world's not like that. It's not black and white like that. This isn't to be taken that literally. It's hyperbole. This, this, 
This whole Christian thing, we've said this a bunch of times, it's not a game. As a Christian, you have signed up to be a new creation. You have signed up to live and act in his name on the earth. If you behave poorly, wrongly, badly, whatever word you want to put on it, okay, and then you claim to be Christian, you are sullying his name. And we're not supposed to do that. It's as simple as that. (laughs) You are supposed to be representing him here on the earth. I get you're not going to be perfect, but boy, you know what? You need to try. This is a high, high calling. Man, that's a good phrase. Have we said that before, Samuel? Hmm, I have to think once or twice. Yeah, once or twice, maybe. So this thing about everyone is going to be salted with fire. Okay, in this context, what are we talking about? Temptation, sin, judgment. So so you could look at that. Everybody's going to be salted with fire. You might think that it's saying that everyone will be tempted. Uh, Okay, that's probably true. You can't escape that. Everybody will be tempted. It may be saying that everyone's going to be judged. Well, okay, that's reasonable, because guess what? You can't escape that either. Everyone is going to be judged. But being salty, and we've seen this in other scriptures, and I think there's more to come, being salty is to be without sin. Therefore, being salted is to have resisted temptation. So, in in this metaphorical world, salt is good, or you might even say that salt is goodness, saltiness is goodness, and this, this points us back to the sacrifices, Samuel, back in Leviticus. They, all of the, well, I, sh- I don't know if I should say the word all, in the majority of circumstances, at least, they were salted, the, 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 the meat was salted before it was placed on the altar. We, too, must be salted as we are made pure through, let's call it that refining fire. So, going through the temptation is suffering, it's painful, but it is also building our character, making us more like the image of God. It's, it's, it's a good thing. And then Jesus adds this little bit about salt is good. How are you going to make it salty if it stops being salty, right? And, and of course, for this, we don't do this very often, Samuel. We need to get better at it. We are going to recommend our episode, The Gospels, number 35. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Shows we're building an archival now if we can reference ourselves. That's right. There's a really good discussion on all of that, though. So, for sure, go back there. But salt is good. Uh, you can't make it salty again, at least not, you know, uh, like from a chemistry perspective. But the salt, what is that? They, they are our righteous acts, meaning they are every thought and word and action that is in agreement with God's will. And it's something that it simply cannot be missing from a disciple. Now, Samuel, could you go out in the world and just pick people at random and find them doing things that are in agreement with God's will? Of course. And would some of these people absolutely, completely, and totally hate God and the church, as far as we can tell? Yep. 
Yeah, of course. So if you're a Christian and you're going to church and you're salty in the same way the rest of the world is, I'm going to have to call that a negative. <laughs> that's not that's not the picture. We need to be pursuing real righteousness, real image of God stuff. And part of that is how we live together as the assembly, the body, the church. We have to have salt in ourselves, meaning we have, you know, some righteousness, some purity in ourselves. And if that is the case, then we will be able to be at peace with one another. And you know what? Think about it. I know that that wasn't on this episode, but it wasn't that long ago. This references us back all the way to the beginning of the discussion when the disciples were arguing about what, Samuel? You said it in your intro. Who was the greatest? Yeah. That little discussion right there is not being at peace with one another. (laughs) So you can see how Jesus, all these things that he's saying, he's building that this is a, a, a big teaching that all kind of works together. And this is an image, I think, of the church today. I'll ask you, Sam, do you think, if you if you look at the church as a whole, and we don't have a whole big worldly perspective, but we kind of can tell in the United States, right? Would you say that the church in America is united? <laughs> no, that's kind of laughable. Right. It just isn't really. Now, are there a lot of things that churches generally agree on, and so in some sense we're all kind of on the same page? Yeah. Yeah, it's true, but we're not really a united unit. It's not as if the body of Christ in America is moving as a single unit and affecting the world. It's just not happening. I'm getting the picture, like if if the uh, church or the assembly is supposed to represent the body of Christ. Right now, I'm within our country. At least it feels like you know in the Adams family when you have there's that one character that's just like a dismembered arm that runs around the house. <laughs> it's like all over the country we have like arms running around, legs hopping, eyes yeah. bouncing on the pavement, but no like true like body form moving. Yeah collectively it's true it's it's a mess and and i don't want that to come out making it sound like i think the church is dumb or bad or whatever it's not like that but we're just trying to be honest with ourselves the church needs to be united as a single body and of course that's over the whole world but my goodness at least in a geographic location like a state or you know like the united states or something like that but the thing that we could, I think, more easily bond over if people were willing to do so is the pursuit of righteousness, the whole idea of seeking the kingdom. I know we're going to have disagreements about things, but if we were all pursuing that together, I think we'd have a much greater impact. But instead, instead of being united, we're divided. And what are we divided over? Things like interpretations of the scripture. I'm not saying that we have to agree on everything, but do we really have to be divided over them? Doctrines. Okay, same thing. I get it. We're not going to agree, but can we not still be in unity? And what else are we divided over, Samuel? Really, really important stuff like carpeting. 
paint color. What type of cr- crackers do, do we use in communion? Yeah. Should we use wine or grape juice? <laughs> you know, it is ridiculous. And no wonder the world looks at us and, and does not hold us in any sort of high regard. We're, we're kind of a laughingstock. It's, it's understandable that they do so. But if we were to unite over the right things, then, you know, we could be at peace among ourselves. And I think that we would actually have an impact on the world. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like what you asked me during this discussion about thinking of those within the world that are displaying goodness and how there is a very high likelihood that a lot of those are not underneath the banner of God's kingdom and his campaign. And and then if we're taking that with the salt discussion that Jesus is referencing, it's going to sound a little comical, but I hope that the, the illustration uh, hits home for some people. So like for those who are not pursuing God, but they're still showing goodness, like because all of humanity are image bearers, and have the capability of mimicking God to some degree, but those who are not under his standards, it's like the lightly salted chips. Like they're <laughs> they're experiencing and showing hints of it, but for us who are within God's kingdom and pursuing him, it needs to be the full-fledged, like, you know, no salt removed on the chips. And, you know, I'm thinking about as a person who does lots of hiking and if I'm doing a lot of miles in one day and like one after I've exerted myself, what I crave so much is something salty. And then whenever I take a bite of something that I've packed with me and experience that, it is, it's so satisfying. And <laughs> oh, yeah. it, our, our lives should be, be like that to others in terms of how we display generosity and compassion and mercy um, should be that same type of human experience where it, it's like the the sati- satiation of a of a good salted chip or pork or whatever. So um, yeah. I, I wanted to say that to say like again we're not trying to say that non God people aren't capable of doing good, but our standard needs to be much more salty than they are. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a huge difference between faithfulness, loyalty, fidelity toward God and doing good for his sake, his name's sake and doing it for who knows whatever worldly earthly reason. And 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 good is still good, you're not going to act like it's not, but but there is a big difference. And so maybe they're kind of like the uh, chips that have, you know, a 73% less sodium. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The motivation, the purpose, it's, it's, I don't know, it's all such a big story. That's why this podcast is moving slowly through because there are so many concepts and ideas to get to and get out and being able to repeat them and things. It's, it's just a much better way to experience your scriptures and, and hopefully as we do it on the podcast, it, it'll become more of a habit for people just in their regular lives away from podcast. Mm-hmm. Well, so Jesus goes on in Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14. Uh, this is a very popular little 
parable, story, whatever. They make a song out of it. Everybody loves. This is good. So here we go. It says this. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. (laughs) Okay, this is a good one. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got to like this one, no matter what. So it starts out, though, saying, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. So uh, again, and I tried to point this out before, yes, we may be talking about literal children, but the context seems to lean much more heavily toward those that have become like a child. And it could be whether they're immature in the faith, like they, they were just recently lost, but now they're you know saved, or it could be the mature in faith and they, they're just choosing to be lowly and humble. But the warning is to not despise them. Do not look down on them. Be careful to elevate and keep them at their proper status. They are his, just like you are his, assuming you are, right? So that's like the the, the opening salvo. It's like, okay, don't despise the little ones. And then he's going to explain how God does not despise them. And so that'll be an example for us. But he uses this phrase. He says, uh, let me read that again. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father. Okay, their angels. Samuel, does this sound anything like the whole idea of a guardian angel to you? It does kind of fit within that category. Yeah, it does. And I'm going to say this, I think, is probably kind of a shocking thing. That idea was pretty popular within Judaism. Now, that's not the end of the story, though. So I personally struggle with this because I've, you know, I've just considered this whole guardian angel thing to be just a wives' tale. It's just not really a thing. But... And now this gets to exactly what was popular within Judaism. You know, what what are you talking about? Okay, the idea is this. We're not talking about a single invisible angel that hangs out over your shoulder, following you around, protecting you from every danger, telling you to do this, don't do that, whatever. Uh, That is not the image that we're talking about. The correct image, at least a first century Jewish kind of image here, is one where God himself may dispatch an angel on a person's behalf. It may be for action. It may be just for, I don't know, some sort of message, whatever. And and it's not even necessary that it be the same angel every time. In fact, notice it was plural. They're angels. 
the important understanding that we're supposed to take away from this is that these little ones are not despised in heaven. They're not despised by God. They're not despised by angels. They're treated with high regard. In fact, it's such high regard that even those angels that regularly minister in God's presence, meaning they always see his face, those angels may even be sent on their behalf. And so if it's that important to God, we must be careful to show the same regard and do not despise these little ones. Yeah, I mean, we see that concept all through the Torah, at least especially in Genesis with the patriarchs. Like, I mean, I know that there's a big separation between those figures like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, you know, in comparison to normal followers like us. But think about it. Abraham, he had visitors after his circumcision. Jacob, he wrestled with an angel that was disguised until he received a blessing and a name change. I recently just read in the Midrash that Joseph, in his journey from being sold by his brothers to slavery all the way to him rising to leadership and power in Egypt was visited by a disguised angel three times. So it just goes to show that like you you never know what part of God's arsenal is doing work on behalf of those that are trying to uh, pledge allegiance to him with their own life and fidelity. Yeah, and and you know, always to keep in mind is just looking around at your circumstances with your eyes, ears, you know, whatever, isn't always a good indicator of how involved God is in your life and what he's doing on your behalf and all those things. It's, uh, yeah, it's good. So he continues in here, he talks about, uh, he starts talking about the sheep, right? And and so you have sheep, uh, a sheep that has gone astray. Now, there's a, a verse here, I didn't read it, and some of you may have it, some of you may not. It's verse 11, and it simply says, For the Son of Man came to save the lost. Now, the beauty of that little uh, verse, whether you have it or you don't, is that, I mean, it certainly does no damage to the text in any way. It doesn't bring any false idea. In fact, it actually stands out as a really good introduction to, to the story that we're about to read of the hundred sheep. So, I don't know. I think it's kind of good that it's there. And if you don't have it, you don't have to worry about it. It's not like it hurts anything. But the parable is about the lost. And when someone is lost and they are then found or, or they return of their own accord, whatever it might be, there is great rejoicing over these little ones. Yeah? They need care. In fact, there's greater rejoicing over the lost one returning than over the 99 righteous ones who never go astray. Now, if you have ever been a child in a family with brothers and sisters of your own, you're going to immediately know that this is going to feel wrong, right? You're not going to like it. But God is rejoicing over the lost one, not because he likes that formerly lost one 
more. This is just a way of communicating how God's desire, how how great God's desire is that we return to him and how he feels about that return. And to maybe make it a little easier to comprehend, imagine you're a parent, you've got, let's just say, many children, and and one of them gets sick or injured, something like that, and and for a time, maybe you're worried about them, very worried about them, but then they recover. Now, imagine that parent's response among all of their children. It's probably going to be a lot like God's. There's going to be an extra measure of excitement, pleasure, uh, just just loving on on that one child because you know what? I I could have lost them. That was that was a hard thing to go through, but now I have them back. I'm excited about that. It doesn't mean that I love any of my other children less, but in this moment, I really really love this one because I almost lost them. Right, mm-hmm. and that—that's all God's doing. That's all this little parable is about. We too should rejoice when anyone repents and returns to God. We've got to learn to see that in the same way that He does His eyes, kind of thing. He even says, "Oh, I—I I put this in there, Samuel. Remember back in John three sixteen when you had that cool bit about it isn't like God so loves the world, but it was more like." God, in a similar manner or in the same way, loves the world. Yeah, God loves the world in this way or in yeah, this, in this way. Yeah, this this is doing that. It's saying, and where's my spot here? So it is not the will of my Father, right? So in the same way, it's not the will of the Father. The shepherd didn't want to lose even one sheep out of a hundred. And similarly, God doesn't want to lose anyone. Therefore, for our part, we must carefully watch over and protect the little ones. We must not allow them to become that one sheep that goes astray. And then, understanding God's response to their return should also instruct us on the importance of guiding, protecting, we would call that discipling the little ones so that they do not go astray. And we might even look at this from the other direction, if they've strayed, we need to do our part to ensure that their return is permanent. Well, first of all, that there is a return and that that return is permanent. So it's it's just joining in with God's perspective on humanity, what he hopes for it. And I, I don't know, I just, it's a cool parable. It's such a beautiful picture. And uh you know, nothing fancy or shocking in there. It's just good. Yeah. And I think that's the story's testament to how God treats repentance, because in some way you could treat this detail within the story of the one sheep being found again as, in some ways, a symbol for repentance itself and how God and his angels are celebrating so much and i know that there's some concept like i don't want it to open a can of worms like i'm not saying that god was uh capricious and caused us to fall for whatever reason but there there seems to be a concept as like the the goodness of 
within our brokenness, being able to pursue and experience repentance will make the kingdom and the world to come that much sweeter when we get there. Because if oh yeah, if we experience that reality and we never went through those difficulties and overcame the overcame them, then there's I don't know. In my opinion, there seems to be a disconnect there with how great that reward is at the end. So I, I just really liked seeing how how much God is like a, a major cheerleader for repentance. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of, I, I'm pretty sure we've said it before on the podcast, but that that uh, that Jewish mindset that says, you know what, you should love doing good, doing righteousness in this life, because this is the only life where it matters. In the kingdom of the world to come, you're going to do good, you're going to do righteousness, but that's because it's going to be like infused in you. It's like built in. Here, you have the opportunity to give in to temptation. You have the opportunity to raise your own will above his. But when you don't, it's, I mean, there, there's something meritorious about that, right? And I don't mean you're earning your salvation. I'm just, it, it's a thing. And this is the only life where you could do that. So so we should love it. Now I just think that's a that's a cool mindset to have toward mm-hmm, it. For sure. Now Paul, I have something else that I need to unpack before we move on. <laughs> do it. <laughs> um this probably is going to seem like it's unpacking a can of worms, but I th- I, th- I think it hopefully will result in some good. So while people were probably listening to this story, I can bet that the song Reckless Love probably came into some people's minds because mm-hmm. it talks about, you know, being uh, God fighting until you're found, chasing you, leaving the yeah. 99. And it says the uh, overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Like that, ask, it, it seems reckless to leave 99 to go chase the one. And so, but I struggle with that song in some ways because like God's not reckless because like he's, God and like he knows what he's doing so I mean I know that there's probably some hyperbole within that song just to showcase the links in which God will go to bring you back into his fold but I guess can we wrestle with that a little bit on at least just thinking within the terms of a first century shepherd like it probably would seem reckless because of how how much sheep depend on the shepherd for guidance and protection from wolves and the environment and everything to leave them there. So why would Jesus display that in this illustration? Why would he leave all the other 99 alone, I guess? Because they deserve protection and guidance as well. Yeah. Well, I think there's, yeah, I think there's a, boy, there's a lot to talk about in that. Um, but it is a really good question, and I've I've seen it. I've seen a bunch of people who they just hate that song because you can't call God rec- reckless, and then a bunch of people just love that song because they just the the message really resonates with them, and 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 it, it, it it's just good. I'm just going to be honest. I come down on the side of I'm just going to call it the more I don't know creative people or something. And the only reason I say that is because. My sense, when you have a song like that, 
mean, this guy, he's, he's just trying to be poetic. And, and we've all done things like this. We choose words when we're trying to say something. And uh, you know, in this moment, I can't think of an example. But we choose words that we know aren't technically accurate. But somehow they're, they're in the vein of truth. They, they, they bring about uh, an image, uh, a thought that helps you, yeah, yeah, it's, this is, this really is, okay, is God reckless? No. Does everybody know that? Yes. But when you say that God's love is reckless, if you knew you were reading a poem, would it bother you? No. No. Why? Because it's a poem and it's not meant to be taken literally. Right. The idea of the poem is to, to push you to, to think or to imagine or to, to view something in a whole new way. It's, it's trying to stir that, that imagination within you. Well, I got news for you. What are songs? They're kind of like a melodic poem. Yeah, they just are. And so I, I think if somebody went to, who, who's the guy that did it? Is that like Corey Asbury? Or, I can't I, I, remember. I probably shouldn't have said it because if I'm wrong, people think I'm dumb. But whatever. Whoever the guy was that wrote that, I think if, if he was here with us on the podcast and we said, hey, by the way, when you say reckless, did you mean that literally? And he said, oh, yeah, totally. Well, guess what? I'm going to be first in line to condemn. <laughs> okay, dude, you're messed up. That ain't right. But if, if he was here and we were able to ask him and he said, no, dude, don't you, don't you get what I'm trying to say? Don't you see how I went outside the bounds? Because I want you to know that God's love is so outside the bounds of what you can actually comprehend. Right? I use a word like that to, right? I'm just, I'm egging you on, getting you outside your box. Well, I, I, it seems, it seems overly literal to take a song and, and act like this guy has somehow destroyed doctrine and theology of the ages. It just, it's not fair. Mm -hmm. And that's another reason, Samuel, did Jesus not just tell us to pluck our eyes out? (laughs) He did. (laughs) Well... If you're gonna go take some guy who wrote a song and go, you can't call God reckless. I hate your song. Well, I, I'm kind of feeling like, dude, you need to start cutting off limbs and poking your eyes out. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna get all literal on us like that, what what are you doing? So I think, I mean, for sure, for sure, if the song disturbs you, don't do the song. I mean, I'm not telling anybody, hey, you got to lighten up and be like me. I'm just saying, dude, you need to leave some room for people to have their own relation and experience with God. And I'm not saying you get to make up your own God or you get to make up your own rules or any of that stuff. I'm just saying God's big. God can handle us. And if it turns out we get to heaven and he's like, yeah, Paul, you know, you did okay, but that whole, you know, not standing up against me being reckless, what the heck's wrong with you, son? You should have been first in line to say, stop calling God reckless. Okay, 
I was wrong. I'm sorry. But I just don't think so. I think the way I hear it and the way that I take those lyrics and and that enhances my understanding of the the actual true nature of God and and his love i just think i think god can handle it so anyway everybody can make up their own minds what they want to do with songs songs they like songs they don't whatever but don't take those things i mean th- honestly i think they're in the category of opinion and you are welcome to it, but you're not welcome to lay it on other people's backs. I think it makes you a lot like the Sadducees and the Herodians and some of the Pharisees and that kind of stuff. It's just, it, it, you're pushing too hard. Yeah. I'm really glad you said it the way that you did because it takes me back, and I promise I'll let you move on. Uh, just hopefully this wraps it up. Um, I'm thinking back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount whenever he goes through all kinds of different parables where the intent was describing what the kingdom is going to be like um, and how we're to treat everything underneath that umbrella and not as much hyper-literally. And in the same way, this portion of Jesus' ministry, like the previous story that we just went through about cutting off limbs gouging out eyes like that has a symbolic meaning to it and so in the next story i wonder if his disciples were listening to him say like a shepherd has a hundred sheep and leaves the 99 to go find the one like while they're hearing that is it possible they're like of course jesus is not being literal here because that that has to be like irresponsible like on a literal sense as a shepherd if, if especially if he was alone and didn't have other people to say like watch the 99 while I go find this one that has run off but it's like oh he's getting at something deeper here so ho- hopefully yeah. that shows you that it's like he's he's he has a what am I thinking of an agenda that he's trying to bring about with the symbolism yeah it, it, the funny thing is uh when, as we've done this podcast, I think we have found ourselves sometimes on the side of, hey, we're pushing for a much greater or deeper level of adherence to Scripture, and, and we feel a sense of responsibility toward things that other people don't. And all that. So, in some sense, it's like we're, we're pushing for, you know, more, harder, deeper, something, you just, it like people would think we go too far. And then in other areas, it's like, you know, we're, we're the, gee, you guys ought to just lighten up crowd, you know? Uh, it's, and again, why is this? Is it because we don't really know what we're talking about? We don't really have a cogent story? Well, I mean, that's of course possible, but I don't think so. I think what this is, is in our pursuit of the scriptures, interpretations, what is the story that's really being told here? We are trying to paint a single picture, something that holds together the best it possibly can across everything. Now, we're not the only ones in the world doing it. We know that. But it is in trying to paint that picture, trying to get the thing that makes the most 
sense as a single whole, well, sometimes we're going to fall down right in line with others, and sometimes we're going to sound like we're being harsher or more strict or something than others. Sometimes it's going to sound like we're being looser than others. It's it's just going to be a mix like that. But the story that we're trying to tell, the story that we're trying to bring out of the Gospels, we believe it to be consistent. And so, I don't know. It's like inconsistent and consistent all at the same time. <laughs> Survey says consistent. Inconsistent. I don't know. I've lost. We are consistently inconsistent. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, well, you know what, Samuel? I'm glad you brought it up. It's, uh, I mean, seriously, the next section, uh, there's a name for this. What do they call this? Like, it's like the Matthew 18 approach or or solution. I can't I can't remember the phrase. It's like a really big deal. And and it's uh there's so much for me to say there. There's no way we're gonna fit it in. We're gonna need to stop. Okay. But it's okay. I, I think it was totally worth, you know, addressing just a hey, this is a real issue. I mean, people outside of America may not have any idea what we're talking about, but you know what? People in churches, they fight over carpeting and paint and theology and doctrine and songs yeah right it's it's just a real thing and i don't know maybe there was somebody listening and maybe they felt bad because they liked the song and told somebody told them they shouldn't or maybe somebody felt bad because they were playing the song and they knew that there were people that didn't like it or i don't know i don't know what it is maybe in some of that conversation you can walk away with you know what we are all for clear specific unambiguous Really, really good definitions of who God is and and what he does. We are so in favor of that. And at the same time, we are very willing and able to, to relate to God and to one another using language and story and narrative and poetry and anything else you can think of that gets the idea across. We're not hurt and offended or bothered by that. And we're not saying that anyone who doesn't agree with us is somehow dumb. I mean, you got to go with what you're convinced at right now. That's okay. But maybe something we've said helps somebody in a, a real today situation. Yeah. I mean, and isn't that a description of the text itself, how we have so many different formats and literary themes from beginning to end from narrative to history to song and liturgy to proverbs um all of those things are expressions of divine divinely inspired expressions of the relationship between god and humanity so yeah um hopefully our discussion took us all a step closer to acceptance and understanding and openness to all of those things. Wouldn't it be great if language could actually communicate and express who God is? <laughs> I mean, the God God became flesh and God also became human language, so Yeah. Yeah. But it's always and forever going to be inadequate. It cannot touch 
his true fullness. It just can't. And that's okay. That's okay. Well, this didn't go the way we thought. And (laughs) you know what? We're both smiling. It's okie dokie. Most. (laughs) All right. Let's cut this thing down, Samuel. Okie dokie. Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. See you all next week.